Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. I was in Iraq, in Baghdad, in the journalist's hotel, and somebody, another reporter said to me, did you ever see the footage of that CIA officer running for his life in the fort in Masary Sharif? I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies, Team Alpha. Part one, the tip of the spear. In 2004, journalist Toby Harmden became fascinated with the story of Team Alpha, a group of eight CIA officers working in Afghanistan in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Toby was working in Washington, D.C. when 9-11 happened. He covered the U.S. response as it unfolded. But it wasn't until three years later that his curiosity about Team Alpha was piqued. It all began with a video of one of the eight men running desperately for his life. I went onto YouTube or wherever and watched it. And it was footage of this CIA officer dressed in sort of an, an amalgam of Afghan and American gear running across this fort, clutching a Kalashnikov in one hand and a pistol in the other. And then he bursts into a room on the northern end of the fort, and all of a sudden he's on camera. He's basically sort of bumped into a German TV crew. And I remember looking at this man's eyes, like a thousand yard stare, these staring, unblinking eyes, and just thinking, wondering, you know, what had he just been through? He doesn't know whether he's gonna live for another few more minutes, another few hours, or what is going to happen. And so I was fascinated by that person and how he got to the fort, what he went through, and also how he dealt with the subsequent years. In this week's True Spies, the story behind that video. The story of the man with the thousand-yard stare. The one Toby Hondon spent years trying to talk to, hoping to hear the full, unclassified details. My name is David Tyson. I'm a retired CIA officer. I spent 25 years in the agency, and uh, many years ago, uh, some 20 years ago, I uh, joined Team Alpha and went into Afghanistan soon after 9-11. David and Toby have come together for this special two-part True Spies series to tell the story of Team Alpha, the story of America's first casualty of the war in Afghanistan. Let's go back to the video that first captured Toby's attention, to the man, David, running across the fort of Mazari Sharif, looking for all the world like a grizzled veteran of close-hand conflict. You might be surprised to learn that the man clutching a Kalashnikov in one hand and a pistol in the other was not an experienced fighter. David's background was in linguistics, but True Spies listeners know Sometimes a hidden skill lands you in a place you'd never imagined. Well, I started with Russian as a as a young man out of the army in college, and I chose Russian simply because 
It had strange letters, you know, an odd alphabet. I had not taken a language before that. And I went to graduate school at Indiana University, and there I started Uzbek language and studied Turkmen language, Farsi, and so forth. And this is when the Soviet Union still existed. So uh, although Russian and Uzbek are not related linguistically, they certainly are in terms of sort of the politics of that time when Uzbekistan was part of the Soviet Union. And over time, I uh, understood that the agency was hiring people, namely linguists, people to do foreign language things, translations, interpretation, and so forth. I uh, submitted an application and was selected to be a linguist. An Uzbek speaker like David would be a strong asset for intelligence services operating in Afghanistan. A country with such a diverse population of ethnic groups, some argue it can hardly be called a country at all. And well before 9-11, America had already established a covert presence in the region. I'll let Toby explain. The CIA had been involved in Afghanistan pretty intensively since the 1980s. So the period of the Soviet occupation, the CIA had been working with the Mujahideen that were fighting the Soviets supplying them with Stinger missiles. Once the Soviets left Afghanistan, and subsequently there was the collapse of the Soviet Union, the US decided that Afghanistan didn't matter anymore. Strategically, it was a backwater. But a you know, small number of CIA officers maintained contact with the country and their connections with the Mujahideen. One of those officers was David Tyson, who was posted to Uzbekistan Afghanistan's neighbor to the north. Regionally, Afghanistan was still important. And so being located in Uzbekistan at the time, and my my chief in, in Uzbekistan asked me to focus on Afghanistan, which was easy to do in the sense that there were plenty of Afghans around and, and I had a great interest in the area and region. And it, it soon became clear that the ethnic Uzbeks in Afghanistan were an important factor in the regional issues. And they, in fact, were fighting against the Taliban that had come to the fore. And they were also fighting against the forces of al-Qaeda, which had sort of moved into Afghanistan in the late 1990s. Before September the 11th, 2001, Al-Qaeda hadn't managed to stage an attack on American soil, but they had already targeted the U.S. elsewhere in the world. In 1998, the group set off simultaneous truck bombs at the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. 224 people died, and more than 4,500 were injured. In 2000, Al-Qaeda bombed the USS Cole, a Navy destroyer docked in a port in Yemen, killing 17 more. Now, of course, since 1996, when Osama bin Laden was expelled from Sudan, he'd been given refuge inside Afghanistan. And so with the rise of the Taliban and the Taliban's relationship with al-Qaeda and its hosting of bin Laden, you had a convergence of al-Qaeda and Afghanistan. I mean, it's almost like ripple effects. In, inside the National Security Council, there was a growing sense that Afghanistan mattered again. On September the 11th, 2001, when four commercial airliners crashed into major landmarks of American power, those ripple effects became crushing waves. 
American intelligence officials had long been on alert. And yet, though it may come as a surprise, the Pentagon didn't have a plan for how to respond. General Tommy Franks, head of the US Central Command, believed that it would take many weeks to orchestrate an invasion and that it would require many, many boots on the ground. Not an appealing prospect. But Kofa Black, the director of the CTC, the CIA's counter-terrorism center, had another idea. His plan would incorporate American intelligence, indigenous resistance groups, and the Northern Alliance, a multi-ethnic group of Afghan militias united against the Taliban. There had been CIA missions into Afghanistan um, over the previous two years, and they were called jawbreaker missions. And David Tyson had been on the first one of those in 1999. And so there was a relationship between the CIA and the Northern Alliance. And it was this that Kofa Black built on in his plan that he presented to President Bush. Kofa Black's concept of small teams of eight or so Americans, CIA pathfinders, alongside Green Berets, 12-man ODA, Operation Detachment Alphas, would go into Afghanistan and fight alongside the indigenous resistance. The mission? To gather intelligence on Al-Qaeda with an aim to prevent another 9-11. Each of the eight-man alphabet CIA teams, from Alpha to Juliet, had been assigned to a different region of focus. And the very first one to enter Taliban territory, of course, was Team Alpha. Team Alpha was put together very rapidly. It was a very improvised. The nucleus of the team was four paramilitaries from the Special Activities Division. But one of the things I found fascinating about them was they were not all elite warriors. It was an eclectic bunch of men, led by J.R. Seeger, who was a case officer, a diary speaker who'd worked out of Islamabad with the Mujahideen in the 1980s. The deputy chief was Alex Hernandez, who was a paramilitary officer. Scott Spellmeyer, who was the number three on the team. He was a former ranger, another CIA paramilitary. He'd been wounded in the Black Hawk Down incident in the Battle of Mogadishu. You had Andy, who was a special forces reservist. Mark Rausenberger, he was the medic. Justin Sapp was a Green Beret, 29 years old, so the youngest member of the team. And he was the only one of the eight who was not actually in the CIA. Justin was was added to be the link man with the Green Berets. And, and also because the CIA had a limited number of paramilitaries at that time. And so they needed military personnel to sort of augment the CIA teams. And of course, there was Mike Spann. Mike Spann was a 32-year-old former Marine Corps officer. He joined the CIA just two years prior. And by all accounts, he was eager to further his career. Mike had been to Uzbekistan previously, and we had been working in an effort to gather intelligence on Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. So Mike had been there as a trainer, training local forces, and I had met him several times in that process prior to 9-11. And my early impressions of Mike were sort of the lasting ones in the sense that Mike made an impression and, and those impressions didn't really change over time, even when you got to know Mike fairly well. He was a very focused 
professional. He was fairly quiet and observant. Personally, he had a great sense of humor, but his focus and sort of attention to the mission at hand was something that sort of separated him just a little bit from other, other people. Mike was unambiguous in terms of his opinions, his beliefs, his, his sort of integrity and so forth. There was no doubt when you were talking to Mike where he stood on things. And I always feel that Mike was, in a way, the personification of America after 9-11. Uh, he was very black and white in his outlook, good and evil, with us or against us. And Mike had this burning desire to get to Afghanistan and get to the people who had perpetrated 9-11. Mike was a family man, recently remarried and the father of a new baby boy. His son was only a few months old when he left for Afghanistan. Mike also had two young daughters from his previous marriage. So Mike was at a pivotal point in his personal life. Uh, he had every reason and every justification to put his hand up and say, you know, what, well, you know, it's just too much at the moment. I need to sort of take care of the home front. But not only did Mike not do that, he sort of did the opposite. He fought to get on the team. He had to be on the tip of the spear, as, as he described it, with the CIA in Afghanistan. And really, there was no question in his mind that he was going to be on one of those CIA teams. Mike's wife, Shannon, was a CIA case officer herself. She understood as well as anyone Mike's commitment to his career, to the agency and to his country. So she knew exactly sort of what he was, that he strongly identified as a Marine. And in fact, one of the reasons why he'd left the Marines was because he hadn't experienced enough action and he thought, that the CIA would be more at the forefront of fighting for America and what it stood for. I think it briefly went through her mind to say, well, maybe this isn't the best time. But she knew Mike well enough to know that that was sort of at the core of his being. Mike's view, and Shannon shared it, was that if you were in the CIA and you were a paramilitary, this is what you joined for. And the way Mike explained it to his daughter, Alison, was that what if every daddy decided they had to stay at home? Then there would be nobody to protect you and all of us. And so Mike felt that fighting for his country was the same as fighting for his family. And he was not the sort of person to take a back seat on any of this. The eighth member of Team Alpha and the last to be added to the team was, of course, David Tyson. On September 11th, I was in the air flying from Uzbekistan to London where there was a gathering, a CIA gathering on Stinger missile issues. When I landed in London, I uh, learned very quickly that the World Trade Center had been attacked and the other locations in the United States, the Pentagon and so forth, had been attacked. And the conference was canceled and I returned back to Uzbekistan. He had much, much more experience of Central Asia than anybody else on the team, with the possible exception of J.R. Seeger, who'd spent time in the region. But David had lived for years in Central Asia, and his command of the Uzbek language was almost native. Now, he had limited military experience. He'd had two stints in the U.S. Army, and he joked this first stint, he you know, played basketball in Germany. He later got an ROTC commission as an intelligence officer. But he was no elite warrior, and this was many, many years before. 
And so he had less of a military mindset than the other members of the team whose military experience was either a lot more recent or more high level or more extensive. Let's put it this way. David had never killed anyone. Alex Hernandez, who was the deputy chief, was skeptical of David and said, you know, and said, like, what have you done? And, you know, and, and after David told him that he'd been an academic, Alex would refer to him as the professor or sometimes as the tourist. There was a sense, I think, that David, because he had limited military experience and no combat experience, and because he was so comfortable with the Afghans, that he was willing to take more risks and had maybe less of a perception of danger than some of the other team members. But David was the CIA's sole Uzbek linguist, and his background gave him a significant cultural advantage. He could communicate with America's indigenous allies with an ease that no one else on the team could match. They would talk about how American men sort of stand up to urinate and, and Afghan men crouch down. Uh, he would talk about sex and food and wives and every aspect of life, often with a lot of humour. And so that gave him this rapport with the Afghans that the rest of the team didn't have. My father worked in a paper mill. So I grew up with that sort of working class culture and, and some, something I deeply respect and really appreciate, but I really knew it wasn't for me. At least as a young man, I understood that I needed to sort of try something else, let's put it that way. I always had a natural curiosity about other people who sort of looked and acted differently, and especially those who spoke different languages. I don't know how I ended up where I did, but it was certainly a sort of progression based on my interest and curiosity. Team Alpha's work in Afghanistan would put David face-to-face -face with a key figure in the resistance, someone willing to go to drastic lengths to stamp out the Taliban, the Uzbek warlord Abdul Rashid Dostum. And for David, that was an enticing prospect. As a CIA officer in Uzbekistan, He'd long taken an interest in Dostum. Abdul Rashid Dostum was the leader of the Uzbek minority in Afghanistan, and he was very much against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And one of the things we were doing, we were trying to collect or buy back Stinger missiles that had been passed on to the Afghans during that Soviet-Afghan war in the 1980s. And it became clear to us that it was a good idea to get these missiles back, the ones that remained. And that's what we were doing. And one of the people who were involved was Abdul Rashid Dostum, who was assisting in the acquisition of these missiles and passing them on to the United States indirectly. A helpful guy to have around, if you don't mind mingling with an alleged war criminal. Abdul Rashid Dostum was an ethnic Uzbek warlord, a fearsome military commander with political aspirations for the Uzbek people in northern Afghanistan. His hands were soaked in blood. He had this fearsome reputation as a warrior who gave no quarter on the battlefield. He has this sort of scrubby moustache and usually unshaven and, and his prickly hair. He's, he's powerfully built. I mean, he's like a warlord from central casting. He was notorious for switching sides, so he'd fought alongside the Soviets against the Mujahideen who were backed by 
the CIA in the United States in the 1980s. He'd switched over to the Mujahideen and back again. And so he was viewed by the State Department and the US government more broadly as somebody not to be trusted, somebody with an atrocious human rights record and somebody that really the US should have nothing to do with. Well, never say never. That was the view before 9-11, but of course, you know, as with so many things, it, it changed completely on that day. He had the troops, he had horse-mounted fighters, kind of like a 19th century almost way of fighting where they would conduct cavalry charges and fire RPGs and, and Kalashnikovs from, from horseback. He loathed the Taliban. He was already fighting against them. And so Dostum was one of the men of the moment and the United States wanted him to be alongside them. But as Toby said, Dostum was notorious for switching allegiances. Could a man like that truly be trusted? Even as Team Alpha entered the region in mid-October 2001, its members were uncertain about what was in store for them. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was October the 17th, 2001. The eight-man Team Alpha was about to meet its unlikely ally, the ferocious Uzbek warlord Abdul Rashid Dostum. There was a lot of trepidation going in. Here's this guy who's a warlord who's notorious for switching sides. We don't know what the situation's going to be on the ground. Is this going to be a double cross? Is he going to sort of turn his weapons on us? And so there was this real sense as they flew in on the two Black Hawks. They just didn't know what they were going to face. Once they landed, Dostum and his, and his men sort of swarmed around. The helicopters carried the CIA officers' gear. And Dostum turned to J.R. Seeger, the Team Alpha chief, and said, Welcome to Afghanistan. We must have some tea. That's the funny thing about Dostum. He might have butchered his opponents and tortured his adversaries. 
but he still managed to maintain a sense of decorum. They went into a sort of decrepit abode that had been chosen for the purpose. Some carpets had been put down on the floor. There was debate about whether they should take weapons inside the building because there was a lot of suspicion. But they sat down and Dostum outlined his plan for recapturing Mazari Sharif, of fighting through the Dariusuf Valley, linking up with the Tajik forces of Atta Muhammad Noor and defeating the Taliban with US help. Of course, the city the Americans most wanted to take was Kabul, the capital. But to get there, they'd have to take a strategic route. Mazari Sharif was the fourth largest city in Afghanistan. If the city could be captured, Dostum believed, the Northern Alliance could gain control of the six provinces surrounding it. That would be the beginning of the end for the Taliban. It was a strategic city that had formerly been on important trade routes. Uh, it was on the main ring road that connected it to Kabul. And the strategic importance of, of the city was, once you controlled Mazari Sharif, that was the key to unlocking control of the rest of northern Afghanistan. Solid plan. But in order to carry it out, Dostum would need the help of Atta Muhammad Noor, his sometime rival. Atta's forces would be crucial for the successful capture of Mazari Sharif. And Dostum also wanted to have American equipment and weaponry on his side. In particular, Dostum recognized that he needed US air power to bomb the Taliban forces and then have his Uzbek cavalry ride through and kill the remnants. But Dostum immediately struck the Americans as a man who was serious, whose interests aligned exactly with the United States' aims at that time. And so they decided that, yeah, this was the guy that they could work with. A powerful combination. Dostum's cavalry equipped with American firepower. Of course, Dostum's men wouldn't be the only ones on horseback. Much to Team Alpha's surprise, the rocky terrain left the CIA officers with little choice but to saddle up. How to ride a horse was one thing they hadn't learned in training. How to ride up and down steep mountainous terrain whilst firing your weapon and fending for your life. Well, that's a horse of a different color. We had a 14-hour horse ride, I think, on the fourth or fifth day, and it was just terrible. The horses were terrible, the kit was terrible, and, you know, to be honest, I was afraid and scared all the time on horseback. I could never get the horse to do what I wanted to. The Afghans would laugh at us, and we would sort of entertain them with our incompetence on, on horseback. But, you know, riding horses up and down mountainsides and, and sometimes in combat situations was, was very unnerving. It was a real sort of shock to their systems to realize that they'd have to be moving and sometimes fighting on horseback. Eight days into the mission, David got a taste of something even more unnerving. What we did periodically was split up into smaller teams and groups. And depending on the mission, we went off and, and worked with our Afghan partners, meeting Afghan leaders, talking to prisoners, uh, getting supplies, doing the airdrops and so forth. And one of the things we did was move up with certain Afghan cavalry commanders on horseback and go out to see what was going on, to see the front lines. 
and on occasion to call in airstrikes against the enemy. And on one occasion, we noticed Taliban or Al-Qaeda forces, and, and that was the time where I shot my weapon for the first time at someone and, you know, shooting at, at the enemy. David was accompanied by one of Dostum's lieutenants and 30 men on horseback. And the lieutenant had spotted Al-Qaeda forces in the distance through binoculars. Rather than pick a fight, they opted to retreat, but not before the Al-Qaeda fighters caught sight of them and began to advance. Suddenly, for the very first time, David found himself taking aim at the enemy, shooting and killing. Just imagine for a moment what it's like to be in David's shoes. You did your time in the military, sure, but by your own admission, you spent a lot of that time playing basketball. Then you returned home and made a life, for a time, in the world of academia. Your greatest weapon is your intellect. You speak five languages fluently and are conversant in three more. And you're an asset in conflict zones because of your ability to connect with people. How does it feel to be here on the battlefield? How does it feel to be the one taking a life? During my time in Afghanistan, I didn't think about that kind of thing very much. Each day we had a new set of priorities and, and things to do. And, and each day you were challenged in terms of, you know, not only sort of intellectually trying to figure things out, but also physically and then mentally dealing with, you know, concerns and fears and so forth. It didn't leave much of an impression on me at the time, but certainly later on it did. But it was a very easy thing to do. You know, the things you were trained in the military to do to get a good sight picture on the target and squeeze the trigger was something that was very obvious and easy to do at the time. Throughout the years, did I sort of grapple or, or just reminisce, so to speak, about some of the things that I had done, which included, you know, shooting people, shooting the enemy and killing the enemy. And every once in a while, it sort of hits you and you deal with it a little bit and then move on. And it's something that sort of follows you around forever. Not a single one of the Al-Qaeda fighters survived that day on the front lines. David went to get a closer look at the first person he had shot and killed. He wouldn't process what had happened until later but he did walk away with the young man's gun. A week and a half into their mission, Dostum told Team Alpha that his forces had captured 40 Taliban prisoners. On the 26th of October, the CIA officers were to pay them a visit to stop by the dank sandstone caves where they were held in custody and have a little chat. I wouldn't call them interrogations, more or less sitting down with prisoners that were captured on the battlefield and trying to quickly understand and gather information from them. Naturally, David was one of the men selected for the job. And his colleague Mike, always eager to develop a new skill, was keen to join in. When we first received word that we had some prisoners, it was my task to meet with them based on fact that I spoke some of the languages they spoke and when when Mike found this out he immediately came to me and asked to be part of this process and I said sure I would be happy to have his help 
but he he went back and instead of sort of uh, catching some sleep, Mike came to me when it was still dark, and he had written in a very very tiny his tiny handwriting just dozens and dozens of questions that we should ask the prisoners and sort of questions that he had for me. And we spent the, you know, next few hours before we got on the horses, uh, he spent that time sort of talking to me and trying to understand what I understood about what we were going to do and, and who we were going to see. The next morning, they rode off on horseback to see these prisoners, and they were being held in caves that had been dug out of the mountainside that had been used over the years uh, for prisoners of different types. And uh, the door swung open and Mike and David were confronted by the sight of these emaciated, stinking, dirty prisoners who were absolutely terrified. They sort of flinched when the door opened, not just because of the lights, but because, I mean, David's conclusion was they clearly thought that they were going to be executed they were just going to be dragged out and shot. The CIA wasn't naive to the inhumane conditions in which Dostum held his captives. These men were regularly beaten, sometimes to the point of disfigurement. When Toby says the men were stinking, he means it. One round of questioning ended early because the stench of a prisoner's wounds was too overpowering for the men to endure. As he spoke with the prisoners, David began to recognize them for what they were, primarily Turkmen farmers, largely illiterate, men who'd been forced into fighting under threat of the Taliban. He believed they could be released and sent back to work on their farms. They offered little in the way of useful intelligence. Mike was extremely dogged, extremely thorough, and he always wanted to get to the truth. He was very suspicious of the prisoner stories. And he said to David, well, how do you know this? How can you tell this is just a Turkman and he's just a farmer? He could be lying. He sort of wanted and received a crash course on, you know, how to deal with these uh, or who these prisoners were. And that sort of reaffirmed Mike's sort of, I guess you say, credo of sorts that he uh, he wanted to be the, the pointy end of the spear. He wanted to be on the front line and he wanted to see up close and personal the people... Uh, we were fighting against. Mike, eager to grow in the agency, was hungry for insight that would improve his ability to serve. It not only impressed me, but it sort of uh, made me like him even that much more. By Team Alpha's fourth week in Afghanistan, there were signs that a tide was beginning to turn. Remember how each CIA team was assigned a different region of focus. For Alpha, that included Mazari Sharif. Mazari Sharif is a city that had been back and forth uh, between Taliban and Northern Alliance control. And so there was this, this sense that it was the first domino, that once that domino was toppled, the other dominoes in Northern Afghanistan and then in the rest of the country would fall. And that's, uh, that's what happened. The liberation of Mazari Sharif in the first two weeks of November in 2001 was not something we were really planning for in the sense that we had been in combat and we had some sort of serious resistance to our movement to Mazar in the days just before its liberation. We were told that the Al-Qaeda 
and Taliban forces had left the city, but like everything in combat or in Afghanistan or, or in many other situations, you can't believe necessarily or you can't plan for that kind of thing. You have to go into these situations with your eyes wide open and be ready for what you've been doing the whole time prior to that, you know, getting under fire and so forth and fighting your way through. So as we got closer to the city, people started to come out and started to wave at us and smile and ask us questions and so forth. And it was clear that there were no enemy left in these areas around the city. Masri Sharif fell on November the 10th. 2001, and the CIA and the Green Berets rode in on trucks and horses alongside Dostum's men and, and Atta's men. The Taliban, a lot of them had been killed, but many more had fled. The people lining the streets, cheering and smiling. Some of them had shaved off their beards sort of the, the day before. And for the Americans, it was, I mean, several of them compared it to the liberation of Europe in 1945, of being greeted by, like, liberators and heroes. In Washington, President Bush and other White House officials were elated. In his speech at the United Nations, Bush claimed that the Taliban's days were numbered. But for Team Alpha, on the ground in Afghanistan, that sense of victory was short-lived. The problem was that although the city had been abandoned by the Taliban, many of the Taliban had just melted away, gone to fight elsewhere and to fight another day. And there was a new situation in which Atta, Moakek and Dostum were fighting for control of the city. So it was a different phase. Rather than it just being the Americans and the, the Northern Alliance alongside each other with one aim, which was to recapture Mazari Sharif, things sort of splintered somewhat. That day we did arrive in the Mazar. I got word that there was one group of so-called uh, Al-Qaeda, well, they called them Chechens, were remained in the in a school complex and that they would not surrender. Chechens being a term used to describe foreign fighters from all over the world. As it happened, these fighters weren't from Chechnya or Eastern Europe, but from Pakistan. And they weren't all terrifying warriors. Some were just 12-year-old boys. And we had to basically destroy the school and fight, assault our way into the school complex to kill the rest of the enemy that remained. So even that day of sort of liberation in Mazar, it, it ended with a fairly serious fight. You know, we had to call in airstrikes and so forth. But I think that's sort of symbolic or indicative of the whole process. You have certain feelings and emotions and they can be wiped out very quickly by the turn of events. Back in Washington, there was a sense that Mazari Sharif had fallen. Uh, that was it. There was nothing more to see there. But there was a sort of ambiguity about the city and the surrounding areas that not only continued, but became sort of more heightened in the two weeks or so after Masri Sharif had fallen. So some villages that had capitulated were suddenly not safe to go to. There were groups of prisoners being held and bartered, and David had this sense that um, everything was not quite as it seemed, and there was still a lot of danger. That danger was headquartered in the west of Masri Sharif, 
in a fortress perched high above the city called Kalajengi. Rough translation, House of War. On the 24th of November, David and Mike drove out to the fort to meet their Afghan allies and speak with Al-Qaeda prisoners. There was no electricity in Kalajengi, and in the darkness, the security risk was high. It was not clear what was going on, uh, but it was clear that we had no business there on the evening of 24 November. There were two explosions. I think two suicide bombers blew themselves up. They retreated. But within 24 hours, the men would approach the fort again. The prize was too big to pass up. This was the first time since 9-11 that such a number of Al-Qaeda forces were in our hands, so to speak, and that we would have access to them. And I don't mean us, just our team, but I'm talking the U.S. government writ large. And I'll never forget, Mike was extremely eager to go, extremely eager to get out there. And that's where we'll pick up next week. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week to find out what happens next in the second installment of Team Alpha. Or if you're a subscriber to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts, there's no need to wait. You can listen to it right now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.